Begin reading verse 1. God's Word says in New King James, Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. But with most of them, God was not well pleased, for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now these things became our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. And do not become idolaters as some of them. As is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Nor let us commit sexual immorality as some of them did, and in one day 23,000 fell. Nor let us tempt Christ as some of them also tempted and were destroyed by serpents. Nor complain, as some of them also complain and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now all these things happened to them as examples. And they are written for our admonition, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed, lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. But God is faithful will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to wise men, judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, it is, not, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? For we, though many, are one bread and one body, for we all partake of that one bread. Observe Israel after the flesh. Are not those who eat of the sacrifices partakers of the altar? What am I saying then? That an idol is anything? Or what is offered to idols anything? Rather, that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. I do not want you to have fellowship with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the Lord's table And of the table of demons. Or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Ten of some of the most frightening passages in God's word. When God says, watch out. Do not become lax in your Christian living. Lest you be disqualified. Not disqualified from ministry, but disqualified from the gospel. And that is a uh, very sobering statement for him to make. The idea that you can be delivered, you can be identified through baptism, you can even be partakers of God's goodness and provision, and still not be pleasing to God. That was the condition of Israel. For many of them, most of them, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 10, we are warned against those activities that in and of themselves do not disqualify them, but the heart of rebellion behind them, unchecked, that we give ourselves over to the point of these kinds of five disastrous deeds that deserves God's displeasure, Brings us into that state of grave danger in terms of our spiritual life. 
And so we are warned at the end of the passage from last week with verse 12, which is where we really begin this morning. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. And this is born out of our basic treatise for these three chapters, chapters 8, 9, and 10, which takes us back to that statement, knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. We think we know all we need to know to be saved. We think we've got it all figured out because we've prayed this sinner's prayer. We have done this act of baptism and we are today in church and we think that that is enough. We are puffed up and we know really nothing as we ought to know. But love edifies not only others, but ourselves. It builds us. When we truly know Christ as we ought to know Him, it is demonstrated, it is evidenced by our works. Not that our works save us, but they tell us we are of the redeemed. And when our works tell us differently or tell others around us differently, and again, we talked about 1 John being a great treatise on how do I know I am saved, James being a great treatise of how do I know you are saved. Tremendous books. We like to rely on Romans, which tells us how do I know or how does God know that I am saved. Sorry, I got that a little mixed up. How does God know that I am saved? Romans. How do I know that I am saved? 1 John. How do I know you are saved? James. And they are coming together here in this idea that genuine love for God builds up those around us. I missed one point, And this is very rare for me to go back into a sermon. But it's a point that I feel needs to be It'll come up again, and I wanted, thought I might wait for a couple of weeks till it does resurface, but I want to take time this morning to go back into it. We've been talking about our weaker brethren, that making our weaker brethren stumble is not hurting their feelings, but keeping them from the gospel. That they come to the point of questioning the gospel entirely, questioning the work of Christ, questioning the difference that it supposedly makes, but they don't see it in their life, um, that when we live such lives that bring into doubt the very work of Christ in us, we are causing those who are weak in their faith, and I would consider that to be unestablished in their faith, to be in jeopardy of abandoning that faith, of falling away. I think also contend from this passage on the, those weak in the faith is that those who have not yet received Christ, who, who have dis, misplaced faith, faith in other isms and other people and things, rather than properly placed faith in Jesus Christ, and that we put them in grave jeopardy as well, that they are not ever going to be become a partaker of the salvation that we enjoy. And that we have saw this as one of our motivations two weeks ago is that they might be saved. 
in the midst of all of this, I wanted to talk about one category of weak in the faith that I haven't really dealt with and that we don't often put in the forefront of our thinking or nor in the back of our thinking as we go through a passage like this. But I want to share with you that where your spiritual rubber hits the spiritual road the most is where there are the weakest in faith. And that is in our homes. And those who are weak in the faith are our children. And in your home, you can't hide this kind of rebellion described in chapter 10. You can't hide your idolatry. They know what is important to you, really. You cannot hide your immorality. It will become known to them. You will not hide your desire after evil things. They will hear you tempt Christ and complain. And so as we think of the weaker brethren, we often thinking of those out there, or those others in the church, or those in the universal body of Christ. And seldom are we taking a passage like this and applying it to the weakest amongst us, and that is our very children. Not only my children in my home, but your children in my church. There will be a responsibility to have a consistency in our life before them that says Christ has made a real difference. And they can see the difference in their mom and dad from those people's moms and dads. They can see the difference in the adults in their church compared to the adults out there at school, in the neighborhood, wherever, on the little league team, that they see a real difference because you are walking the walk consistently. And so as we take measure of those who are watching us, those who are watching our faith, and we often think of the world, and we don't always remember that particularly with our younger children who are still part of the world, who have not yet received Christ as their Savior, they are the weakest among us. They require us to be consistent in our walk, to be edifying instead of puffed up. Before you go off and want to exercise your Christian liberty to do as you please because you have a relationship with God and you know it, you better know it a little bit better and realize that you have a primary responsibility to those who are weak in the faith to establish them that they might come to know Christ as their Savior and secure that relationship with their Savior. So I wanted to take that category of people amongst us and remind us of them because I don't think we usually bring them to our thinking at all in these three chapters. But they are watching. And it, as much as you might try to hide things from them, it doesn't really work. We all know that, really. And they know hypocrisy from a mile away. 
We can try to deceive ourselves into saying, I'm just exercising my Christian liberty, but your children know better. They know. But that isn't what pleases God. And so we looked at last week. A frightening passage. That having been delivered, having been identified through baptism in the cloud and the sea, having been partakers of God's goodness and provision, most of Israel, of that generation, God was not well pleased and He scattered their bodies in the wilderness. But this morning, we are pressing on to brighter lands. We're going to leave the wilderness and come to the promised place and be encouraged. Before we do that, let's go, Lord, in prayer. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us that moved you. to meet our great spiritual need through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And Lord, we are well warned in the passages before us to take heed, to watch out, to be on guard. For there are still before us in this Christian life those hazards. But Lord, today we can travel this road with confidence, knowing that you have called us to be more than conquerors. Not in our own wisdom, not in the exercise of our quote-unquote liberty, but in your Son. And all that we know of who you are and what you have done and will continue to do on our behalf. And for this we thank you. We do pray you might guide us today into your truth. That we might be found responsive to it. Lord, it is beyond my capacity to minister to each one here, but as well within yours. So we give ourselves over into your hands that your spirit might have liberty to work, to guard this time from error and from inattention. In Christ Jesus' name, amen. Well, we concluded last week with therefore, as we look at the example of Israel, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Take heed, watch out, pay attention. Don't think that now you can go on autopilot for your Christian walk because you prayed this sinner's prayer and you were baptized as a believer and you are a member of this church or any other church. Take heed, watch out. That isn't what it's all about. That doesn't secure for you a place in heaven. That is not the evidence of genuine faith that endures. So, we have that admonition, that warning. 
and it is immediately followed up. And unfortunately, I didn't have time last week to immediately follow it up with the next verse. It is the hazards of time and uh, the fact that we only gather like this once a week instead of every day. We could have heard this on Monday. You ever wonder about that? The early church met day to day, daily, from house to house. I often wonder what that would be like to preach daily. Um, So, you should have gotten this last week. You should have gotten it maybe Monday. And now here we are a week from this very frightening passage telling us, whoa, am I really saved? You mean my salvation is not secure just because I prayed the sinner's prayer, got baptized, and I'm a member of a church? That's not enough? God could still be not pleased with me? Yep. But we come to verse 13. And we find out that we are not powerless and we are not isolated in this warfare called the Christian life. Verse 13, let me read it for you. It says, No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. And here it comes. Are you ready? But God is faithful. In the midst of all of this rather frightening disclosure, we have this wonderful statement. God is faithful. Well, what does a faithful God do when confronted with this kind of dilemma? Well, he's going to be described in the rest of the verse who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it or to endure it. That is the temptation. And then we're going to go into another therefore in the very next verse. I don't know if we'll get to that verse, but we're going to try. I say, we're not going to get past verse 13. <laughs> um, probably not, but I hope so. I hope to get to verse 14 and 15. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. The example of Israel is not isolated. We look back to them, and I tried to do that last week to demonstrate that what they were guilty of, you could just as easily be guilty of today sitting in church. And in fact, I would contend that most Christians, just like most Israelites, most who call themselves Christians today are just as guilty of these same five sins, acts of rebellion, of offense to God, uh, as Israel were. That we sit in churches this morning across this valley, in this state, this land, and we stand condemned, displeased by God for these very same reasons that there's nothing isolated about this in Israel's day. There's nothing isolated about it today. These are the common temptations. That is that they are common, not in terms of, well, they're easy to to ignore, but rather that they are temptations that, that are equal among all men. 
that there are none of us that can stand up and say, oh, I would never do that. Let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Don't forget verse 12. So just because they are common, that is that they are... uh, experience of all of us, that they are universal among mankind, that they all have within them and around them the propensity for these sins, to desire after evil things, to direct their worship to one other than the one true and living God, to commit sexual immorality, to tempt Christ, to test Him, to see how far you can push the limits of Christ, and then to complain. We can certainly add to this list other sins, but Paul has limited himself to these, that he has specific instances within the experience of Israel to list them off. And he's focusing on Israel because he's focusing on the Christian. Even though these sins are common to all men, they are universal, he wants to narrow the field down to just the believing community. Those who call themselves by that name Christian. Those who claim to be members of church, of the people of God. And so they are common among the people of God, these very same sins, not just a minority of the people got a handful here and there when we get caught in these sins, but most of us will be caught in these sins. That is the frightening statement of that example. That is the concept that is there, is that most of those who claim Christ may very well move into this kind of living that finds not God's pleasure, but God's displeasure. Not God's deliverance, but God's judgment. Not heaven, but disqualification from the gospel. So it is common to man, that is, it is universal among us, I love the fact that Paul already acknowledges that temptations have overtaken us. It is our common experience. We have all fallen. No temptation has overtaken you. Past tense. It already has happened. You were we were sinners, remember? Before you came to Christ, you were sinners, weren't you? You did fall to temptation. You know, you can put the blame on Eve or on Adam all you want, but ultimately, you've done the same or worse. We come into this understanding that we have this common experience, that we have been overtaken in temptation. This is what we were. And for too many within the church... It is what we are. 
regularly overtake him with this kind of temptation. Just because it is a common experience even within the church does not make it acceptable. And this is a little bit of our philosophy of American democracy. This is the philosophy of the old signs underneath the golden arches. So many millions served. How can the majority ever be wrong? Right? Can this many millions be wrong? Oh, yes. You see, we believe that statement that if this many millions are involved in it, therefore, it must be right. It must be acceptable because of its universality. It is common, therefore, it's acceptable. And we believe that because we're taught that, that the majority makes it right. That if you can get that kind of a vote, um, that therefore you have the... What are the, what are the words they use in the political realm now? That you get to go with, you, you know, you're giving a, a, you're sending a message. The majority are sending a message if we have an overwhelming vote. That I am coming here to Capitol Hill with a mandate from the people. As though somehow because of popularity that it equals something that's right. Let me ask you something. Is labor popular? If you could all vote that you wouldn't have, none of you would have to work ever again, how many of you would vote for that? I would like to vote so I don't have to go to work anymore, but I still get paid. Does that make it right? Just because it's popular? But we have this mentality ingrained in us from very young that somehow a democratic form of society, and we don't have that as our government, but we do have it as our society. Um, that's why the Politicians are driven by opinion polls instead of by their conscience. Um, and because we do have a democratic society, we have a Republican government, we have a democratic society. That somehow, if the majority wants something, the majority should get something. And that's ingrained in us. And it is contrary to the scriptures. And we think because everyone's doing it, therefore, you can't judge me. Well, everyone's sinning, folks. And God will judge them. Falling to temptation, yes, is common. That doesn't make it right. And it doesn't make it inevitable. Pastor Leishman in a Sunday night series on sin has been trying to explain that to us by looking over sin's effect on mankind and do we sin because we have to? Is it inevitable? Or can we just not avoid it? Well, for those of us on this side of the cross, sin is entirely avoidable. Not because we are somehow smarter and not because somehow our flesh suddenly got weaker. 
Sin is entirely avoidable because of a very important little phrase right in the middle of verse 13 of 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And that statement is, God is faithful. That makes sin entirely avoidable. Not because I have a really strong will and I can resist temptation. No. Not because I've never had an inclination towards that sin or that sin. No. The reason any and all sin for the believer is entirely avoidable is because God is faithful. And ultimately, this is the principle behind the warning that if sin characterizes you, your life, God can't be a part of it. This is what 1 John goes to great lengths to explain to us. And so we find these statements in 1 John. This is that if anyone is in sin, he is not of the Father. You're not God's. If sin is what characterizes your life. And I want to make that very clear that use of sin is the ongoing, unrepentant, unfought sin. That we have simply given ourselves over to it as Israel had done. That they had just given themselves over to it. They sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play they, they committed all kinds of perversities before God. They just totally surrendered themselves to it. And if that is the condition of our heart that we have just fully surrendered ourselves to and just thrown up our hands and says, oh, everyone's doing it. I'm just human. <laughs> Somehow humanity, being human means we must sin. Not true. We found that out last couple of weeks on Sunday night. If that were true, then Jesus would have sinned. And Adam shouldn't have been condemned for sinning. No, we never throw up our hands and surrender in this warfare of the Christian life. If you have, you are not of God. For giving ourselves over to sin and to falling to temptation is it evidence God is not at work in us. You see, we find that God is faithful. Israel was faithless. They had 40 days without a leader. He was on the mountain. They knew where he was. They knew who was up there with him. They knew God was there on that mountain. They were, it was within sight of them. I want you to understand that. How close they were to God while they went into this debauchery. He, they were within sight of him. He was on the mountain. A, there was lightnings and thunderings and it was black up there. They knew Moses up there. They knew something was happening up there. They were a mountaintop away. It would be as if you were sitting over here along the Rio Grande River and looking up and God is on Sandia Crest. And you can't resist temptation and go into debauchery and think he doesn't know and make your own God. But the fact is, is that God is here. 
you are nearer to God today than Israel was that day. The Spirit of God dwells within us. That's how close you are to God. If you're a child of God today, the Spirit of God dwells within you. You can't get any closer. And Paul's going to try to bring this out when he talks about the communion. And he's maybe referencing the communion table and certainly bringing that picture to our thinking because he's going to address that here in the next chapter. Um, and he's coming to that question that they had in their mind and he's, and he's uh, presaging that. But he tells us, how can you have communion with God and communion with demons? How can you do that? And while we might look at that as external, how can you partake of the communion table and go out there and partake of demonic food in their temple? How can you do both those things? Fundamentally, the real question is inside of us, how can we partake of the table of Christ and the table of demons? How can you claim the righteousness of Christ and cherish the wickedness of this world? And of your flesh. How can you do that? It cannot be. And so, God is faithful to give us the means by which to not just engage in this warfare, but to be victorious in this warfare. That we are to be more than conquerors through Him who loved us. We are to be able to face temptation and flee from it successfully. We are to be able to resist it, avoid it, the sin that it seeks to bring into our life. And this is the measure of God's faithfulness. Now, here's how it's at work. First of all, we find that God is faithful to guard us. The first thing we find is God is going to guard us from too much temptation. And this does something phenomenal. Okay? Right away, you can't blame God for your sin. Okay? He let this temptation come to me. And I've heard people say, God brought me that man. I know he's a married man and that we've had an immoral relationship, but God brought him to me. Yes, I actually had someone in church tell me that. To excuse her sin and his sin. So, first thing God does is He guards us from too much temptation. He sets boundaries. We find a great example of that in the book of Job where God sets the boundaries up for Satan and how, what he can do to Job to try to entice Job to curse God. And so God sets forth these boundaries and he says, okay, you can go this far, you can go this far, you can go this far. Um, and he keeps moving those and stretching Job, if you will. And, and all along the way, Job doesn't sin. And it's a phenomenal statement that look at what God, how far God was allowed, allowed Satan to go to try to entice Job to curse his deliverer, his redeemer. And he doesn't do that. You might say, well, why would he allow him to go that far? Because Job was capable of resisting temptation that far. Because he was a perfect man, a righteous man before God. 
His wife, not so much. But Job, he handled it. Was it easy? Did he enjoy it? No. But he never sinned in all that was thrown at him. What a wonderful and powerful testimony of God's faithfulness. I'm not going to bring so much against you that you must fall. And so don't you dare leave here and say, Pastor, I just couldn't help it. What you are declaring when you say that is this is God's fault. He brought too much temptation in my life and I just couldn't stand. Wrong. You are declaring that God is unfaithful to you. First thing we find out about the faithfulness of God, it guards us so that we know that whatever is being confronted before us of temptation, whether it be from our own flesh, from the world, from Satan himself, that we have the capacity to resist it, that he will never allow us to be tempted beyond what we can reasonably handle. Now that may vary from person to person. I may be able to reasonably handle something on a different level than you. You may be able to reasonably handle a temptation uh, much greater than I in some areas. And so we don't uh, have a, a common measure there, but God faithfully knows what you are capable of. He's faithful in that respect to guard us from temptation. And that's why in our Lord's example prayer, He instructs us to pray this way. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. We are basically calling upon God to keep His promise, to be faithful toward us, to not lead us into temptation, not allow temptation to come into our life uh, beyond what we can resist. This is a promise of God. And it is right for us to pray in accordance with the promises of God. And that is a right prayer to make. Lord, please guard my steps that I may not be tempted. We usually stop right there. Beyond what I have the capacity to resist. That's the promise of God. He does not promise you'll never be tempted. To do so would require Him to remove your flesh from you. Which one day He will. No temptations in heaven. From what I can tell in all my study, I find us without temptation to sin in heaven. But while we are in the flesh, while we are in this world, while we are in Satan's domain, temptation is our lot. But even in this place, God says, I'll guard your way. Even Satan himself won't have any more access to you than what I will allow. And I will never allow him more access than you can handle. So the first act of God's faithfulness is to guard our way. The second 
exercise of God's faithfulness is that he will, has, and will make the way of escape. I want to share with you, um, I know that there may be more than one way of escaping temptation, but I love the fact that it uses the word not to make a way of escape, but the way of escape. I think that's important for a couple of reasons. First of all, um, the way of escape, I believe, is a person. And that person is Jesus. He is our way of escaping temptation. And I also believe that the way is not only the Word made flesh, but the Word before us, God's Word. That we have something solid that is unchangeable. Someone solid who is unchangeable. That we can rely upon no matter what temptation confronts us. That we have this standard and the standard is Jesus uh, and His Word as He has proclaimed and lived it and, and accomplished it before us. And so we have this that addresses every temptation out there. And God says, I'm going to bring it to your mind. I'm going to bring that forward in your thinking. I'm going to reveal that to you even as you confront these temptations. But let there be no mistake, it's not that there's a way out of each temptation. Each temptation has its particular, specific way out. But there is a way out. The way out. And it is the consistent application the person and work of Jesus Christ to our life that is the way of escaping temptation. In college, I was a dorm resident advisor. I think they call them resident advisors still to this day there at Cedarville. And we had a training class. And because uh, we had a music standard in our school. And uh, of course, all the RAs have to know the rule book because you're the police, basically. You've got to know the law if you're going to enforce it. And so we were uh, taken in and the deans left and it was just... Uh, then the dean, you were there, my wife was there too, she was an RA, and the, the deans left and they had a guy up there with a tape record, tape player, yes, they had tape players back then, they were cassettes, they were like about this size and you had to push a button and they mechanically moved and they had magnetics to read that. And For those of you who have never used a cassette deck and only know of MP3 players and CDs and things like that, I was going to bring one to show you, but I failed. So they started playing music, and we were supposed to rate it, whether that was legit or not, whether that was allowed or not. After about, I didn't write anything down, so they played the tune. We were supposed to put number one, and we were supposed to write whether it was legit or not, and then the reasoning behind our determination. Now, this is the first one I didn't write anything down. I'm like, oh, where is this going? You know, you know, not, not because I'm waiting to see what other people are writing so I can copy their answers, but I was just kind of trying to grasp what were they trying to really do here. About the third one, I'm like, I'm not writing anything down. I went through the entire set 
Now they want us to turn in our papers. And I wrote one statement vertically instead of each line. I wrote across all the lines. And I said, none of these are approved because they all test the limits of the policy. You see, there's a little statement in our music policy that says that when in doubt, don't test the limits of the policy. Isn't that a great rule? It means stay away from the line. Don't try to snuggle up and get as close to sin as you can without actually sinning. Run. And so I wrote that along there, and um, the deans come in, and they go over all of it, and we're getting other statements for our RA training, and um, they pull this one out. I didn't put my name on it. They said we didn't have to, so I didn't. I figured I was going to get in trouble if I did. Pulls it out and said, we have one correct paper. Guess who? The guy that wrote, none of them are approved. They all test the limit of the policy. Instead of measuring each song and each artist and each one, what are we doing here? This whole exercise is about how close can we get to breaking the policy without breaking the policy. And it defines most Christian lives. And Christ gives us the way of escape. The way of escape is to be Christ-like. Don't test the limits. Don't try to find out how much of this can I handle before I sin? How far over here to the left or the right do I go before it's not pleasing to God? How close can I get to the Egyptians? Is it okay to eat garlic and leeks? Because it's not okay to desire the leeks and garlics of Egypt. So got them into trouble. Oh, that we would understand that God has faithfully provided us the way of escape for all temptation, and that is the person, Jesus Christ. He was tempted at all points as we are, yet without sin. Okay, there it is. (laughs) How do I avoid temptation? How did Jesus do it? He was a man, a hundred percent man, who was tempted, honestly, had a moral dilemma before God. Am I going to do God's will? Am I going to do my will? Am I going to do what pleases my father? Or am I going to do what pleases me? Or what pleases the world? Or what pleases him? And when we find Jesus tempted, we find him using God's word over and over and over again. And fundamentally, the statement is, don't tempt me. Don't tempt the Lord your God. Don't, that we resist it because we have the person of Jesus Christ that we are seeking to emulate. And that covers a lot of temptations. In fact, it covers all of them. WWJD. What would Jesus do? It's not just jewelry, folks. It's a principle of Christian living. That is, God faithfully giving us the way of escaping temptations. I am not tempted to crack open a beer and get drunk because there is no beer in my house. I won't allow it, even to wash your hair. Do they still do that? I don't know. We used to do that. 
I didn't because I didn't have any. No, I didn't. Oh, I resist temptation because I want to be like Jesus. Would Jesus be doing this? Would Jesus participate in this? How would Jesus respond? What would Jesus be involved in? Would you be okay with Jesus doing what you do during the week? Would you be okay with Jesus thinking what you're thinking during the week? Would you be okay with Jesus planning what you're planning to do this week, this weekend? Oh yeah, I know, we plan. We plan our temptations by putting ourselves in environments that we know the temptation will come. There is, God will make the way of escape. I believe that this is referencing to the work of the Holy Spirit to bring to mind His Word that points us to Christ. It is the way out. It is the least employed resisting of temptation that I hear people talk of. It's Christ. And yet He is the way. His Word is the means to understand what He desires of us. And so it is no mistake that Paul, in dealing specifically with the Corinthians, saying, listen, you guys or having a struggle over whether you should eat meat offered to idols or not, well, let's think about Christ. Let's think about what you are connected to. You have communion with Christ. What should that look like? Do you think it's okay to partake of the Lord's table and the table of demons? Let's just put ourselves in that place. Would you be okay with that? Do you think demons and Jesus belong together? Do you remember Sesame Street? One of these things is not like the other. One of these things just doesn't belong. I remember that. Boy, do I remember that. I could always pick it out. What didn't belong. Of course, I was an adult sitting there watching with my kids, but I could always do it. It's the fork. It's not a spoon. Oh, that we would look at ourselves and say, listen, there's Christ. There's demons. There's me. Which one doesn't belong? Do I look like that? Do I look like that? And let me share with you something. The weak in the faith should have no problem making that call. Here we have these three. Which one doesn't belong? The demons, Christ, and you. Which one doesn't look like the other two? (laughs) That's the question. What do you look like to the world, to the weak of the faith, to your children? What do you look like? Not today in this hour, not in this room. What do you look like all week long? 
Christ or demons? Christ is the way of escape. With each temptation that comes, we have the means to access through God's Word what Christ truly would do. God is faithful to bring that to our mind. Remember that God has said that you're not supposed to worry about how to witness to people because He says, you know what, you walk faithfully before Me and I'll bring to your mind the very words to say to those individuals, the very Scriptures to use, and I'll bring those Scriptures forward. That implies that the Scriptures are in there, by the way, which means you are studying, memorizing, meditating on God's Word. Don't expect them to have supernatural revelation of Scripture you've never read. It's not what that promise is. But rather, you'll bring to your mind, to your memory, that which you already know of Christ, so you can answer for the hope that is in you. Now, I would contend also, corollary with that principle, is that when we face temptation, God is faithful to bring it forward in our thinking, who Christ is, what He has done for us, and His Word, that is the way of escape. Thirdly, and i got two minutes to give you this one, that you may be able to bear it. God's expectation, His faithfulness, first of all, guards you from too much temptation. So don't ever sit there and say, I couldn't. I couldn't help myself. You hear someone say that, slap them. Because they are saying, God isn't faithful. I couldn't help it. You've just spoken heresy. Secondly, God is faithful that He has given you a way of escape. There is a way out. It is declared and demonstrated through His Word and the Word made flesh. And God will always provide that. And then thirdly, God is faithful that you will be empowered, enabled to bear it, to endure it. You can do it because God is faithful to enable you. And this stretches way back into the Garden of Eden in the composition of who we are. God has given you an independent will that you control. And when we surrender to Christ in salvation, we are surrendering our will to Him. So when we talk about that you will be able to bear it, God is faithfully engaging what it means to be human combined with the work of His Spirit within us and His Son before us as our example that we can, in fact, be pleasing to Christ. Though all around us fall into Sin. We do have the ability to not sin. Exercise it and it'll grow stronger like any other ability. The more you resist, the stronger you'll become. And because God is faithful, 
Paul tells his, the people there, his beloved, flee idolatry. You can run away. Distance yourself from that temptation because God is faithful. You can do it. I'm not going to say it's easy. I'm not going to say it's going to be comfortable. I'm not going to say that there isn't some pain involved. I'm not going to say that it's going to be popular. It won't. You're going to have broken relationships because there are those who are going to want you to sin who are going to be disgusted that you choose to be like Christ. Oh, all that is true. But God is faithful. And you can run from sin. You can run from temptation. And we have this encouraging, powerful promise of God. He will guard your way. He will make the way of escape. And you can bear it. You can do it.